to have a true confession as a pastor, you get overzealous in what you are studying, and you realize Sunday morning that you probably studied way more than anybody needs to hear. And so as of 7.30, I've changed my sermon. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm not studied up, okay? It's like... <laughs> Uh, it could be a disaster, right? So here's where we left off with. We left off with Noah coming off the ark. And if we remember correctly, what was the first thing that Noah did after he stepped foot on the ground? He worshipped. He built an altar and he worshipped. And I think it's important to think how he worshipped. He did not worship like you and I worshipped. In fact, if you remember, how many male and female extra animals did he take of each? Anybody remember? Seven. Seven males, seven females that were of clean nature. And then he had the one male and one female that were unclean, strictly for the sole purpose of reproduction. Now, stop for a second and think. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of sacrifice. Seven females, seven males of cattle. Seven females, seven males of horses. Seven females, seven males of cats. And I say praise God because I hate cats. Right? So I'm kind of okay with it. Ooh, that's crude. Should I had coffee this morning? You, you would have liked that joke better. But notice all of this going on for what reason? To worship God. And this wasn't just any strange obscure type of offering this was actually a burnt offering of which Noah would take his hand place it on the head of the animal in confessing guilt of sin this is something that Noah was very serious about this was a transference he is setting up see we, we go through and we just read this idea of verse 20 then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal, that's the sevens and sevens, and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We read burnt offerings, and we would probably, if we're just doing this in devotional time, we just let this slide on by and we just keep going looking for the big thing that's going to punch us in the mouth for the day that we need to humble ourselves. And what you find is that's probably it. This is a transference of sin. This is the idea of promoting substitution. Something else is dying in my place when the person that deserved to die was me. Does everybody see the picture that's being painted? Now, seven and seven, over and over and over and over. Everybody see this? Pretty serious. Notice it's not just, yeah, he probably did this in between commercials. That's not how it went. This was a continual, long, drawn-out process. It needed to be embedded in the mind what had just happened. What had just happened to Noah? What just happened to his wife? What just happened to his kids? What just happened to their wives? Anybody, I mean, what would we call that? If you sum it up in one word, what was it? What was it? Saved. saved. Now, do they get saved? In a way, yeah. But are we talking about go to heaven when you die? No. They have been delivered from calamity. When they got off the ark, what do you think they saw around them? Anybody know? Destruction, chaos, carcasses, people. 
They may have very well walked across somebody that they knew of the living before they got into the ark. They come off and there they lay. A mess. It's a stark reminder. God takes sin seriously. God judges sin seriously. And here is the main reason. Because sin is a personal affront to the creator of all things. He takes sin personally. So now let's pick up. Noah builds the altar. He sacrifices, verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. That means it was satisfying to him from the burnt offering. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Pause for a second. Let's pay attention real quick. Start from the beginning. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said, everybody see to himself, if you have the NASB, you probably got a little number there. Look over in your margin. What's it say? Anybody see it? Come on, we're all awake this morning. And the Lord said what? What's it say? To his heart. Does everybody see that? If you don't have that in your margins, the Lord said to his heart, the Lord is speaking amongst himself and he is making a vow. Notice what he says. I will never again, everybody see the words never again? That means never, ever, 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 ever again. Very important that we get how emphatic the emphasis is on this. Never again curse the ground on account of man. For, here's the reason why, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Pause for a second. God, Yahweh, has just given you and I a divine assessment of what lies within each one of us. Think about this. Because here's where pride gets all riled up and says, you know what, I'm not that bad. I love other people. Stop for a second. The raw material of where we all begin at birth is sitting right here. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. You cannot be saved by anything you do. Everything that is devised within us is corrupt before his sight. So now we have a major quandary going on because if sin is so horrible and if sin is all that we can do, then sin totally corrupts us and makes us ineligible for salvation. Why is that? Because there's nothing we can bring to the table. Our hands are broken and bleeding before him. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? Okay, everybody's real quiet. Everybody nods so at least I can hear the marbles rattling around. Okay, good, 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 okay. So notice, this is his divine assessment, the inclinations of the heart. But notice what he says, I will never again. Everybody see that he repeats it? Why do they repeat things like this in the Bible? Importance, emphasis. They want you to get it. They want to grab you by the neck and go, get it, right? Notice, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now here's what he says. While the earth remains, pause for a second, there's your condition. Is there going to be a time when heaven and earth pass away? Yeah, we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth that come along. So we know that there's a time period. This is age lasting, okay? Here's the conditional aspect. If you want to write conditional aspect in your Bible, 
with your Grace Bible Church pen. Don't use another one. Your Bible might set on fire. While the earth remains, here's what he says, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This is a divine promise. The cycles of the seasons will not stop until the earth passes away. Now pause for a second. God has just pronounced environmental stability. Does everybody get this? Now pause, think, 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 think. What is the world telling you that is against a declaration like this? It's been real huge. What is it? Global warming. Boy, it's an inconvenient truth, isn't it? It's so inconvenient, I can't find it in the Bible. It's not going to happen that way. Has anybody checked in to see how much it costs to run all the energy in Al Gore's house? It's a lot. Yeah, he's got it covered. It's under an umbrella somewhere. The cycles and seasons will not change. Yahweh, get this, Yahweh makes sure that it happens. If he said it, he does it. He guarantees it. Or let's put it in a different way. His word is sure. His word is sure. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So notice as it moves forward here. And God blessed Noah, chapter 9, verse 1, and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Now, some of y'all decided you were going to give me a hard time about fish being on the ark. Shame on you. I won't talk more about that, but you know who I'm talking about, right, Kevin Ham? <laughs> oh, you're here. My bad. I forgot you were here today. Seriously, it's not an issue to, to destroy fellowship on. Could there have been fish in the sea whenever the ark went down? Yeah, it could have. Could have been on the ark? Yeah, it could have. Is it up to God? Yes. Does it affect my salvation? No. I'm not any more sanctified because of one way I, I, I go, but I have good reasons for it. If you want to talk to me about it, we can do that. Just not during Sunday school time, okay? Laverne, not during Sunday school time. Can't do that. All right. <laughs> Lead you off a path there. Okay. Um, so notice, into your hand they are given. Now the fear of you and the terror of you, animals, they're going to be scared to death. You ever wonder why when, when, when your kid tries to go after a squirrel, they run? It's not just because it's your kid. It's because God gave them the fear, the fear of you to run away, to not be a part of that, to move on. But into your hand they are given. Look what it says. Verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Everybody was a vegetarian up until this point. Now they are able to eat meat. And knowing what I know about Kentucky barbecue, I say praise the Lord. Right? <laughs> Mm, exactly. So now they're meat eaters. Verse 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life. Pay attention. That is its blood. The blood is the life. Now pause for a second and let's stop and, and, and focus down, think about this. When you talk about the necessity of draining out blood from any meat that you were to eat, what is God trying to paint a picture of? Do we know? 
Was Christ's blood not poured out for you? Okay, man, that's kind of a stretch. Okay, let's, let's back it up a little bit. Have you ever thought about when you're munching down on a hamburger that something had to die so that you could be sustained? See, God actually uses that as an illustration. Anytime that you and I participate in the eating of meat, there is something that had to lose its life in order to continue to prolong our life. Everything, everything is up for grabs in the scripture. And everything God wants to use to point you to the fact of what Christ would do on the cross. Everything, even your hamburgers. He wants you to get it and constantly think about it and constantly be focused on it and constantly realize why is that? Because you will never lack humility if you understand what was given in, in allowing us to eat meat. You'll never lack humility in living your life. Never which is a place we all need to be, which is a place I desperately need to be every day, humbled, humbled before my God. He says here, verse five, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. God has now done something different. We've now switched dispensations. Remember, a dispensation is a stewardship of how God decides to run the world. What he wants to do, what requirements he wants to lay down. And he has now instituted capital punishment. This is what is known as the dispensation of human government. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, where is it? It's up here. On the back of your paper here, I've actually given you the dispensation of human government. What is the responsibility? Where did they fail? Where is the judgment? And where is the grace? They are told to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Fill the entire earth. Fill it up. Procreate. It's okay. God wants you to do it. But he also allows them to eat meat. He also moves forward and says, you are now to govern yourselves. Now, how in the world could they govern themselves? Well, did they not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? So they all have an embedded conscience now that knows between good and evil. The problem was is that man wanted to constantly default into evil and only do evil, and by doing that, invited the judgment of God through the flood. Now, what are they asking? If you know the difference between right and wrong, keep your fellow man in check institute a justice system judge yourselves so that you would not be judged by Yahweh does everybody see how that works now this isn't any different from what Paul tells us about communion is it if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged by the Lord it's the same type of concept if we would take seriously the enacting of a God standard judgment here on earth God would not judge us Sounds good, doesn't it? All we got to do is be responsible people. But as we'll see next week, people fail. Moving on, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This is the dispensation of human government from chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 7. Now let's look at verse 8 because we have something new that steps into this process here. And, and if, and if and here's the thing, who, here's a good question. Who's been to Sunday school in their life? We all know this story, don't we? 
We all know it. Do we have a picture up? We do. The rainbow. We all know this, right? We've all been through seeing it, and it's a pretty rainbow. Why? Because God's a pretty God. He wants to do pretty things for pretty people. Is that how it is? Not really. It really signifies something. God, remember, God's a communicator. So he wants to tell you and I something specific, and he wants to constantly bring a reminder to us about it. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself, extremely important, if you have your pen, mark that. Because notice, God's putting himself in the initiator's seat of everything. He is focusing what he's getting ready to say in on himself. He is the responsible party. I myself do establish my, what? Covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. God is going to make a covenant. A covenant. It is the Hebrew word berith. It means to cut is the idea. And any time that you see a covenant enacted in Scripture, you're going to have somewhere in that context a shedding of blood that ratifies that covenant. Is everybody with me? Yes? Marbles. Marbles. Okay. If they're not, marbles are the way. Everybody with me? Okay, good. A covenant. Anytime you see the word covenant... Immediately think the word contract, okay? There is a contract that God is making. Now stop for a moment and think through what you know about other beliefs. Have you ever seen any other deity that you know of in any other religion bother to, to, to stoop down to make a covenant with people? Anybody? Did Zeus ever do that? No. Did Hermes ever do that? You see what I'm saying? We could go through a long list of guys. You never find anywhere where somebody is actually going to stoop themselves down. In fact, what's interesting is, is the whole definition of condescending, God condescending himself in the Old Testament or stooping down to our level or speaking what it actually means. It doesn't mean that God's up there kind of not knowing what's going on in heaven and he's like, oh yeah, you guys. That's not what that is. It's any time that he is stooping or condescending himself down, it's because he is going to speak to us like a person talks to a person. Remember, he's a very personal God. He takes sin personally. He takes our relationships personally. But when he condescends, that word in the Hebrew actually is where we get the idea of grace from. It is God stooping down to our level to be more identifiable with us eye to eye. So notice he is making a covenant. He's making a contract. And he's setting himself in the center of this contract. Now the recipients of the contract are not just Noah, but who? Somebody said it. Everything. He is making a contract with everything that will ever exist. Are the stakes high in this contract? That's a lot of responsibility to fulfill. It's one thing if you've got a contract with one person. It's another thing if you've got a contract with an entity, right? That's called a mortgage. That's what that is, right? Everybody with me on that? Amen, brother. Preach it. Exactly. But it's also another thing if you've got it with not just one company, but everyone who breathes. Notice it's not just people. He's got his covenant. He's making this contract with livestock and animals. In other words, everything that he's created. Now think for a second. Does God owe the creation anything? No, in fact, if we're going to be just straight honest with it and plain, it's the creation that's been messing everything up this whole time. 
Everything he's been creating has been doing its own thing and causing all kinds of problems that he has to come in constantly and dip down and rescue them out of their calamity. And yet God wants to make an agreement with us. We're included in this. There are no Jews yet. So this is talking worldwide stuff. He's very clear. He's made a contract with you. He's made a contract with me. Notice it says here, verse 12. Or I'm sorry, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall, here it is, notice it, never again. Remember that at the end of chapter 8? Never again, never again. Never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God is promising that he will never flood the world and destroy or use that as a form of judgment ever again. Now, remember back a couple of weeks, we were dealing in Peter. And if you remember, he talked about that those people forget that the flood came and swept everybody away. They also forget that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? What was the element going to be used in the future? Fire. Notice that. Notice that God, notice this doesn't exempt God from judging sin. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes we're always looking for the sleeper, uh, the, the sleepy, that's me, the slippery, greasy tract in order to get out of God somehow dealing with our sin or judging it or holding us accountable or responsible. Notice that's not this. God is just keeping his word, promising that he will never bring execution upon the world again in that manner. Notice his word is at the center of it. And so moving on, he says here, verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenants. The word can also be translated, it's a token is the idea. This is something that he is going to be putting forward as a constant reminder of this agreement that he is binding himself to with the entire world. Think, think about this. We run over this so easily in Sunday school. I know I'm saying the word think, I know I'm saying the word stop, and I know I'm saying the word pause a lot. But if we don't do those things, we're going to miss it, okay? God is putting himself under obligation to you and me. He is actually placing himself in a position to say, I promise I will never do this. In fact, what this is known as that we're reading is the Noahic Covenant, N-O-A-H-I-C, Noahic Covenant, or you can call it the Noahic Contract. And here's what it is. It is an unconditional contract. This is extremely important for you to get to know. Otherwise, the other covenants in the Bible will never make any sense. This is the first one. This is the first time it's mentioned. There are people that say covenants go on in the beginning of Genesis. They're not there. Don't listen to that garbage. This is the very first one that pops up, okay? So since this is the first mention of covenant going on here, there's a lot about it that we need to understand that's been lined out. And first is, is that it's unconditional in nature because God puts the results of everything going on, the conditions of it all, resting on himself. I, myself, am doing this. Here's the amazing thing we see. Has he put any stipulation on you and I? Are you obligated to do anything? Do you have some sort of requirement you've got to meet? Is there something you need to perform? Is there a way you need to think? Do you need to, I don't know, get rid of all the episodes of Cheers in your video collection? Does that need to happen? No, it doesn't need to happen. He is holding no one responsible for this fulfillment. Because it's unconditional, it will happen, period. That's it. Look what he says here, verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations, for all time. It is age-lasting. He says, I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be 
for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, from what you know about the Bible, we talk about a rainbow for just a second. Seems kind of innocent and harmless. Where else do we see glimpses of a rainbow in the scriptures? We know. Think what you know about the Bible. Think of the book of Revelation. What's going on there in the throne room of God? Do we know? Everybody know that there's a rainbow that surrounds his throne? Everybody seen that? Everybody know that? All of a sudden I saw this, this look. That's a good look. Let's turn there. Let's have some fun. Revelation 4. And Revelation 4 is so special because you get a glimpse into the throne room of God in heaven. Revelation chapter 4. John is seeing a vision. He is caught up into heaven to look at something. Revelation chapter 4. If you hit glossary, you went too far. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. God, here, now think about this real quick. God is using reflections of light that he already has present in eternity, past, present, and future that surround his throne. And when it pops up like this, he wants to give you a slight glimpse into the glory of what that looks like. That's so cool, right? Notice it's not just letting you know that there's a festival around the corner. Everybody finally caught that. Good. It took a minute to sink in. I was waiting. Not festival. Not that. The grocery store. Notice it's not letting you that there's a, know that there's a parade coming. Everybody will let that sink in for just a second. Notice it is something that God has taken and wants to show you and I a glimpse into the glory of what it is to be before his throne. Now, let's look at another one real quick. Is that okay? Can we do that? Ezekiel. Everybody turn to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 1. This is real good because it gets our, our flipping skills down, right? Flipping pages. Know our books of the Bible. You ought to hear the Iwana kids do the song for the books of the Bible, man. It's great. I love it. Ezekiel 1. Now, if you're looking for a reason to worship throughout the week, just take Ezekiel 1 in pieces and you won't be at any loss for any material, okay? But it's, it's Ezekiel seeing God and how he moves in, in, in all of his majesty in, in the heavens, but he brings the chapter to a close with a very interesting look here. Verse uh, 27, let's just do 27 because it's such a cool verse, okay? Let's do that. 
Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins, from his waist and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. Now, he just gave you the best description he could possibly give you when he is looking dead on at the person of who God is. It's gleaming metal and fire upwards and it's radiance and fire downwards. That's the best he can do. That's the best description of God's appearance, of Yahweh Almighty that you could find. And then verse 28. As the appearance of the what? Rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance, notice this, of the surrounding radiance. Didn't we see in chapter 4 of Revelation, the rainbow around his throne? We saw that. Notice what he says. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. When he took in everything that is glorious about who God is, his face hit the ground. He had no choice but to humble himself and worship. Everybody see how it all fits together here? So notice God is giving us a glimpse into his glory in Genesis 9. Let's turn back there real quick. Verse 14. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again, there's the words again, shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant. Please, please, please underline that everlasting covenant everlasting it will continue on until the earth passes away so crucial for us to get this the everlasting covenant between god and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth and god said to noah this is the sign of the covenant which i have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth is god obligated to make a contract with us no why do you think he does? He's our father. He's ensuring us that we're safe. What else we think? Well, I mean, God's not obligated to do anything for us, is he? He what? He loves us. So good. So good, right? Because he loves us. But notice he's talking about a specific instance that took place. Who said grace? Grace. That's the Sunday school answer. Come on. That's even the name of the church. Come on. But no, it's true. By his grace, he doesn't have to. In fact, if his divine assessment of our depravity is, you all just can't help being evil even when you're young. You're always evil. Everything in your heart is darkness springing out of it. What do we deserve if that's the case? Judgment, death. The wages of sin are death. What does he give us instead? A promise, a covenant, a contract. I am signing this and I am responsible for it. You don't have to do anything. I'm just guaranteeing you that this is the way it's going to be. Now, what does he use to guarantee this? Does he sign on the dotted line? Does he take it in and have a notary stamp it out? 
County clerk get involved? No? County clerk of Ararat get involved where the heart sit down? How does he verify this? How does he sign off on this? How does he say this is it? His blood? Well, there's blood to ratify the covenant. That's true. It ratifies the covenant, but piece of his glory. We see the token here. That's a reminder, a sign for us. Y'all are going to go, oh, when I say it. His word. Who said it? Who said it? Excellent. Here, good job. Yeah. Remind me, I'll get you a donut sometime. That's good. His word. His word. Notice what God is teaching us here. Nothing is greater than Yahweh. And yet Yahweh will put himself under stipulation of his word. And he says, my word holds fast. My word is true. My word is sure. My word cannot be shaken. What is he trying to teach us? Don't question the Bible, maybe. Keep your word, maybe. What is it? Say it. He's the sovereign Lord. Yes, but even he upholds his word and places it over him. In fact, I had such a hard time putting this together in words that I could say I wrote this down. God is demonstrating the power of his word by binding himself to it. In keeping his own word, he shows it to be superior, authoritative, and true. Yahweh has voluntarily placed himself under his word. Do actions speak louder than words to us today? They absolutely do. Notice that this is something that God understands. And so he says what he's going to do and places himself under it and says that all the seasons are going to be reliant upon him to uphold them until the end of the earth. And we get to test him on it. We get to see if he's telling the truth. We get to see if he'll never destroy the world again by a flood. His word, his word, his word. How does God create? His word. Everybody remember that? And God said, and God said. Previously nothing, now there is something. His word is paramount. His word is sure. Please get this today. Take your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. right after Psalm 118. Good job. Good job. See, you guys are starting to get my, I'll convert you guys to my sense of humor yet. Psalm 119, verse 9. Start there. Here's a good one. How can a young man keep his way pure? All you impure young men out there, how do you get straightened up? Look what he says. By keeping it according to your... Oh, interesting. By how you live your life, live it according to the word. Important? Absolutely. With all my heart, I have sought you. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What are his commandments? It's his word. Get that. Not just talking about the Ten Commandments. Okay? It's his word. That's where we're getting at. Your word. Word, I have treasured in my heart 
Why? That I may not sin against you. Hold on just a second. The psalmist just dropped a bombshell. Do we have a problem with sin? Is the answer to do better, try harder? No. In fact, that's like putting your foot on the gas and running headfirst into a brick wall. I'll never do that again. Yeah, well, I just did that last week. Uh, right? Doesn't matter what situation you're in, as soon as you make that vow, because here's the reason why. Think about God's divine assessment. Does our word mean anything? Oh, man, even to ourselves. And we deceive ourselves thinking we're strong, we're good, we're disciplined. Some of the best situations are when disciplined people fall flat on their faces. Why? Because that's where they needed to be at the beginning before they got in all that trouble. It's not that I don't appreciate their willingness, but what do they really need? They needed for the word to be paramount in their lives. What God says goes. Do we have problems with sin? Look what it says. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. All sin is against God. God takes all sin personally. And if we want to know what it is to be not sinning as believers, it is because we become more thoroughly convinced of his word, that our mind has been renewed according to his word. And what pulls out of that? Obedience. Why? Because you now believe that the truth is true. Everybody with me? So watch this. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your, what does it say? Statutes. Good, not statues, right? Statutes. What is that? It's his word. It's his principles. Notice he says here, with my lips, I have told of all of your ordinances of your mouth, his words. Notice this here, I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. The very things you've told me, God, I've told them to other people. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts, your principles, the things you've said, and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Does everybody realize that that verse right there, verse 18, is about illumination? The psalmist is praying that God would illuminate his word to his eyes so that he would do it. Illumination. Everybody familiar with the doctrine of illumination? You've read the same chapter in the Bible over and over and over and over, and you're like, oh, I've read that before. And then you pray, Father, please illuminate the scriptures to my understanding. And you read through it, and something goes right in your head, and you're like, whoa, I've read that 400 times. But 401 was the coolest. Why? Because the Holy Spirit got involved and went, and all of a sudden your Bible became neon. And we started paying attention. And there was something that grabbed a hold of your heart that says, you will not shake this truth today. That's why you pray for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit before you do so. How many of us are familiar with Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law, his word. You realize you can get something out of meditating on the law? Don't believe me. Show up for Sunday school after this, right? We're going through Deuteronomy. 
How about this? Turn to Colossians. Yeah, see, everybody started, got out their handkerchiefs, started wiping their brows. New Testament, praise God. Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 16. You know it's got to be good because it's 316, right? Praise Jesus. That guy got it right when he put all those chapters and verse numbers in there. Every 316 is ordained by God. So notice. Colossians 3, verse 16. Everybody's still flipping. I'll give you a minute. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops. Remember it that way, right? Hey, do what it takes to remember them, right? (laughs) Whatever it takes. Verse 16. And pay attention to the wording here because it's precise. Let. Everybody see the word let? Let. In fact, that is actually a underlined word. It's just the word let. Underline it. Because you're going to see why it matters here in just a second, okay? Let. The word of Christ richly, richly, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Pause for a second because I want you to understand this. Number one, everybody see with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Everybody see that? Everybody see the next part with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. That doesn't mean you're the guy on Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments. The Lord will take us away from here. It's not that guy, okay? He's not like the weird Old Testament monk guy. That's not what he's calling you to be, okay? But here's the thing. All of those things I just pointed out to you in the second part of this verse are things that flow out of enacting the first part of this verse. Does that make sense? That's important. The results of this. Now, watch what happens here. Let... The word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it. Let it. Let it be there. Let it take root. Stop fighting it. Everybody see it that way? Stop walking away from it. Stop leaving it in between the two speakers in the back seat of your car up on the dashboard thing. Stop leaving it on the table. Stop allowing dust to fill it up. Charles Spurgeon said one time, some of our Bibles are so dusty on the top, we could write the word damnation with our finger if we wanted to. Stop it. Open it. Let it dwell. How? Richly. What does that conjure in your mind? Richly. Let the word dwell richly. Let it dwell Number one, we know from dwelling, the idea of setting up tabernacle, right? Opening up shop, God's going to tabernacle amongst people. He's going to dwell amongst men. He's going to reside there. He's planted down. He is amongst us kind of thing. Let the word reside in here richly. What does that look like? Richly, richly. What is that? What is that? What does that conjure for you? For some reason, I'm thinking of the wheel on on, uh, Price is Right. I don't know. You get the thousand dollars, you're like, yeah! Does the word do that to you? Does it dwell in you? Is it richly? Does it flow out? Does it overflow onto other people? Do you got enough of the word on you that you're afraid other people are going to catch it? 
You see what I'm saying? Where are you with the word? What does your personal private time with the word look like? When we throw that famous Christianese verbiage out there, fellowship, is that flowing out of the word richly dwelling in us? Because the rest of that verse tells us how to have fellowship with one another. Is it that we're rejoicing over the great promises of God? Is it we're thankful that every time we see a rainbow, regardless of what the world has done to it, that we can stop and say the word of God is sure, it is certain. Why do we want everyone to have a copy of this? Because nothing else is going to keep you from sin. Because nothing else is going to lead you to life. Because nothing else is going to bring us to the point where we forsake everything that the world thinks is great and we actually take the steps to live in obedience to God who has called us to some crazy stuff in our lives. Because the word of God was given for one reason and one reason only. It wasn't to make heads bigger. It was to make lives different. It was meant to change us. That's why one of the greatest sins we could ever commit against God is walking out of this building the same way we walked in. Why? Because publicly reading and receiving the word, pondering, contemplating it, meditating it, let it dwell in here, memorizing it, recalling it, discussing it with others, having small group studies to focus in on what God asks of us, has done for us, displays for us, regardless of what it is, is to make a difference. It is to sever the worldliness. It is begin to convince us that his ways are right, our ways are wrong. When he looked at our hearts, what did he see? Depravity. Total. Ridiculous amounts. How do you do that? This has got to get in our hearts. Not just a little bit here, a little bit there. If you're doing one verse devotions, stop it. Wake up earlier, set an alarm clock, and get you out a pen, this pen, and paper, and open up your word and study it. Don't just read it. Don't just, this is the little tidbit I need to get me through the day. And don't be worried about covering a mass quantity of Scripture. Bible study is never about quantity. It is always about quality. If you're hung up on the same three verses for a month, praise God, they will be so rooted in you and your mind will be so thoroughly convinced by what the Holy Spirit wants to do with it, you cannot help but to be a different person. And think about what the difference God wants to make. What is he trying to do in us? He's trying to conform us to the image of his son. I don't know about you, but if you've got self-esteem issues, that's a good deal. It's a great deal. Because it's God the one who's doing all the changing. It is God the one who is doing everything to fix it and to move it in that direction. Why? Because it's completely, perfectly harmonious and pleasing to his will. And he all does it through this. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God fantastic? Be in the word. Be in the word. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the promises of this book. Thank you for the love that you display for us in this book. 
Thank you for the word that became flesh, giving himself for helpless, sinful people. Thank you, God, for the sign, the token, the reminder that the promises of your word are sure. Thank you that you give us a reflective glimpse into the glory around your throne. Thank you, God, that you care more about us than sometimes what we care about ourselves. You are loving. You are good. And Father, with you, we are never alone. Father, convince our minds, change our hearts today. Set us on a path that the word would dwell richly in us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.